Imagine the perfect murder. It goes completely undetected as a crime. A true masterful plan. Now imagine finding out it was committed by two teenage girls who were only caught because one couldn't stop talking. I'm Stephanie Gick and welcome to episode 4 of Ominous Ontario. The photo accompanying this episode is the first one I have to blur, and that's because of Canada's strict laws when it comes to youth offenders. You may be friends with someone convicted of first-degree murder, and unless they want to tell you, you'll never know. For today, I have to use fake names for the whole story because it is strictly banned to use the real names of the victim or her killers in this case. It was about 10.30 p.m. on January 18, 2003, that Sandra Anderson made a frantic call to 911. The distraught teenager had just come home with her sister from a restaurant, and she was horrified to find her mother Linda dead in the bathtub. Police found that Linda had been drinking excessively and had taken Tylenol-3 with codeine. The drowning was ruled accidental, and the girls were sent to live with their aunt. And that should have been the end of the tragic story of three children losing their mother to a drowning at home. But the thing about secrets is that once someone else knows, it can't stay a secret for long. Sandra and her sister Beth were close, inseparable even. Less than a year apart in age, the girls always shared a room and they always relied on each other. Their father left when they were young and he had a new family and not much time for the girls. Linda was known to be a heavy drinker. She had never admitted to being an alcoholic though, and there was no police history of violence, points that are important later on. Both girls were intelligent. They spoke four languages, and their guidance counselor said he had never seen such smart kids in his over 30-year career. The girls also had a desire for the finer things in life, things they felt should have been theirs. Instead, they were having to shop at thrift stores while their mother worked two jobs to keep the family afloat. Linda had a hard time keeping up on bills, but the girls couldn't help but notice she always had alcohol on hand. On the flip side, their friends were wearing designer clothes, had the newest gadgets, and something Sandra especially loved. They lived in large homes with swimming pools. Both girls seemed to have a rebellious streak. They would skip school, they liked to smoke marijuana, usually daily, and they had no regard for any curfew Linda tried to set. Not that it would have mattered anymore. Linda was always working or drinking at that point. Coworkers said she loved her daughters and was proud of how gifted they were, but that she was clearly drinking. The girls couldn't take it anymore, and in the end of 2002, they started to search for a simple way to murder their mother. Sandra and Beth had a very loyal and close group of friends. Sandra had two very close friends, Ashley and Jay. Beth preferred to keep close to just one person besides Sandra, and that was her boyfriend, Justin. The teens all use instant messaging on the computer to communicate, something that would come back to bite the sisters later on. It seemed early on in the planning stages, Justin knew it was better not to discuss it because on January 5th, 2003, he warned Beth not to say too much online. He did, however, offer up some Tylenol 3s that were prescribed to one of his parents so the girls could give them to Linda combined with her drinking. Just a week later, Beth told him the girls had set a date for the drowning for the following weekend. 
on January 12th, six days before the murder of Linda, Beth and Justin were having yet another conversation about the upcoming murder. Justin described dry drowning to Beth and told her that drowning is the single most painful way to die after burning slowly to death, to which Beth replied, yeah, it would suck to drown. Sandra, on the other hand, had a boyfriend named Donnie. In December of 2002, Sandra asked him what he'd do if he found out she had killed someone. Donnie told her immediately he would turn her in. Donnie said that the girls did dress in shabbier clothes, but that that couldn't be blamed on Linda. Every time she gave them money, they would spend it on pot. Donnie knew that Sandra drank, but he also knew that she worked hard to make sure the girls had what they needed, even if the girls didn't buy needs with the money they were given. As the weekend of January 18th was approaching, the girls were making plans with friends to go to Jack Astor's near the Square One shopping center in Mississauga. Donnie was told he couldn't come because he'd disapprove. He asked over and over what he would disapprove of. But Sandra wouldn't tell him, so he assumed that Sandra was going to try harder drugs. After all, she had been talking about trying cocaine lately, and she was right. Donnie wouldn't approve. He decided to just let her do her thing, and she'd call him when she was done. The day had finally arrived. Their little brother Bobby was at his father's for the weekend, and around noon, the girls began mixing their mother her favorite drink, vodka and lemonade. She was getting more and more inebriated with each drink the girls thrust into her hands. And then they began handing her the Tylenol 3s provided by Justin. Sandra had her take two at a time every 30 minutes. They'd spent hours on their computer researching how much to give. They didn't want her to die from the pills, but they did want her to be as out of her mind as possible. The whole time, the girls were chatting online with their friends. Ashley, Jay, and Justin knew the whole plan and were just waiting until it was time to meet for dinner, a perfect alibi put in place. The last message Ashley sent Sandra that afternoon was a chilling piece of advice. Well, good luck, wear gloves. By the time the girls were ready to fill the tub, they had given their mother six Tylenol 3s and a 26 ounce bottle of vodka, plus several glasses of wine. Linda was barely conscious and had the hardest time standing up. The girls had then led their mother to the bathroom for her final bath. Linda couldn't even undress herself. The girls had to help her. They assisted her into the tub, but she entered with her head under the tap. They didn't bother positioning her the way someone would normally sit in a tub. Sandra then began giving her a massage. All she had to do was ask her mother to turn around, and Sandra rolled herself willingly onto her stomach. Sandra put on her gloves, and it was time. Beth was in the doorway watching it all unfold. Sandra simply held her mother's head underwater. Linda was so intoxicated, she put up absolutely no struggle. The phone rang and Beth went to answer it, leaving Sandra alone. It was Ashley, and Beth told her it wasn't a good time. Sandra expected a struggle, but there was absolutely none. Just the regular convulsions that come with drowning. Sandra read it takes two to six minutes to drown someone, so she set a timer and held her mother's head underwater for four minutes. After Linda was dead, the girls grabbed her bank card and headed for the bus stop. When they got to square one, Sandra threw the gloves and a baggie with two Tylenol 3s left in a garbage can. During their meal, Ashley said Sandra seemed out of it while Beth seemed completely unaffected by the fact they had just taken their mother's life. After a few hours at the restaurant, the group went their separate ways, with the girls going home to finish their disturbing plot. 
Once the girls arrived home, the hardest part was about to begin. They had to call for help, but make it seem convincing. In what I quite frankly see as a botched investigation, some police said the call was an Oscar-worthy performance featuring the older Anderson daughter. The 911 operator kept telling Sandra she needed to lift her mother from the tub, but she kept saying she didn't want to touch her. Once paramedics arrived, they noticed a few things they found odd. Most noticeably, the fact that Sandra was face down with her head under the tap. She was also in only six inches of water, but they theorized the water could have slowly drained while the girls were eating dinner. Constable Blair Horner did find it weird that the girls didn't try to lift their mother, but she was a larger woman and the paramedics did say they had some difficulty lifting her from the shallow water. One of the paramedics noted that she looked like she may have passed out and fallen forwards into the tub. That simple note put the idea into motion that this was a tragic accident. They did look for obvious signs of murder, noting that there would have been bruising had she had her head held underwater. And there were so many alcohol bottles in the house, it seemed very logical that the woman had simply passed out and slipped. Rigor mortis was already setting in in the jaw, and there was no signs of strangulation. One constable noted the shower curtain wasn't in the usual place for someone taking a bath. It was inside the tub. During interviews, neither girl had a suspicious demeanor and both were composed when speaking of finding their mother. The forensic investigator would say that, although nothing specifically pointed to murder, he couldn't shake the feeling that something wasn't right. Drowning in your own bathtub is incredibly uncommon, and she had no injuries to suggest that she fell to make herself land face down under the tap. The coroner noted her blood alcohol level was shockingly high, five times the legal limit. No drug tests were ordered, as the alcohol levels in her body alone was sufficient for complete unconsciousness. As such, the death was ruled an accidental drowning, and Sandra and Beth had just gotten away with murder. The funeral was an open casket, and many of Linda's colleagues and friends attended. Her co-workers liked her a lot and knew she was having some trouble keeping the girls in line. She would often brag to them about how smart the girls were, but seeing the girls dressed in messy clothes, laughing with their friends at their mother's funeral, left many of them wondering if these could possibly be the same girls Linda had been so proud of. Immediately following Linda's death, the girl's father tried to move into the townhouse and get them set up with rules and routines, but he was met with aggression every time. They simply wouldn't listen and didn't care about school or anything but their friends, really. After just two weeks, he decided it was a lost cause and the girls were sent to live with their aunt, who had been left legal guardian by Linda. The girls were fine with this. Their aunt lived in a nicer home than them. The problem with murder, though, is that it can eat away at you. And for one of the girls, it did exactly that. Sandra began drinking heavily, the very thing she chastised her mother for, the very thing she murdered her for. She told her boyfriend Donnie one night what she had done. He loved her and tried to stay with her, but the drinking became too much for her. He eventually broke it off, but he did not tell authorities what he knew. She began hanging out with an older man named Chad. Chad had a girlfriend, but Sandra wanted to be with him. They would often drink together, and he had become another confidant in her mother's untimely demise. He too kept the secret. For almost a year after the murders, Sandra would get drunk and tell people at parties exactly how she killed her mother, often chastising Beth for leaving her to answer the phone. It was at this time Sandra decided to email an old friend named David. His mother used to babysit the girls. 
David always really liked Linda. He thought she always tried her hardest to be a good mom, and he always thought it was weird that the girls never cried at her funeral. Sandra asked him if they could meet in person to talk, which David happily agreed to. What he wasn't expecting was a confession of murder. At this point, we can confirm that at least 10 people knew about the murder, and hundreds of others among two different schools heard it from friends, but no one had gone to police. David was different. He was religious, and he was afraid after talking to Sandra that she might be suicidal. Unsure of what to do, he contacted his friend Mario, who urged him to contact a guidance counselor that they knew. That counselor also happened to be an auxiliary Ontario Provincial Police officer. Police asked David to wear a wire and meet up with Sandra again, which he did. David ended up having three recorded meetings with the girls. One of the most chilling things about those meetings is Sandra describing how often people get away with murder. She discussed how good she would be at criminology and went on to tell him, quote, there is no such thing as the perfect crime, right? But there is a degree that once you get to, it's perfect enough. And that happens more than people expect, unquote. I don't know what's worse, those words from a 17-year-old or the fact that she may very well be right. She also discussed life insurance payouts in the recordings and how she might want to be a coke dealer, but really there wasn't enough. The girls had received $60,000 each, which Santa pointed out was nothing when you consider a kilo of cocaine is $100,000. She also mentioned that the policy was much bigger before, closer to $250,000, but that Linda had let that policy lapse. This was enough for police, and on January 21, 2004, the girls were arrested. They were given the opportunity to change out of their pajamas, but refused. The next day, they wore their pajamas to court. In March, their friends were interviewed, but left out the fact that they knew as much as they did. The police had no idea how many people knew about this plot until the girls' computers were searched. On those drives, police found 14,680 hits on the word drowning and 247 hits on Tylenol. They were also able to see all the chat history, and a lot of teenagers all of a sudden had some explaining to do. In a rare move, the girls were released on house arrest despite the seriousness of their charges. The conditions of that release were no contact with their little brother Bobby, no contact with any other teenagers except the cousins that lived in the home. They must be at home between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. They can only leave for work or school, no alcohol or drugs, and the life insurance was frozen. No school in Peel would accept the girls, so they had to continue their education online. On August 14, 2014, Beth's boyfriend Justin was charged with conspiracy to commit murder. He was all over the chats, helping to plan it, and he supplied the pills. No one else involved in the plan was ever arrested. Ashley, Jay, and Chad testified against the girls in exchange for immunity. The defense claimed that the death was accidental and the girls telling their friends they murdered their mother was a social experiment, highlighting just how many people were told about the murder and didn't take it seriously. It did little to sway the judge who convicted the girls of first-degree murder on December 15, 2005. While convicting them, he said, the two defendants set out to commit the perfect crime, but instead they created the perfect prosecution. The case against them is overwhelming. It is probably the strongest case I have seen in over 30 years of prosecuting, defending, and judging criminal cases. 
kind of makes it more shocking that no one investigated all the little things further. At sentencing, the defense pointed out abuse against Linda by her ex-boyfriend Doug, which were documented in children's aid reports. A forensic psychiatrist said the girls were unlikely to reoffend, and on June 30th, 2006, the girls were sentenced as youth instead of adults, which means they were sentenced to only six years maximum in secure custody with four more years in open custody, which just means supervised in the community. The girls served their sentence at Grand Valley Institute in Kitchener, Ontario. This is the most frightening to me. In June 2010, Sandra was paroled. Beth was paroled one year later. We are not allowed to name them. Their crimes are completely off their record. They are mothers themselves, and one of them is an award-winning scientist. The other? Practicing law. These girls may be your friend and you'll never know it. You could have a convicted murderer babysitting your kids at this very moment. But if they were under 18 when they did it, you would never have a clue unless they told you. Sandra has done a recent interview with Global News where she attempts to explain her side, as if there was a valid reason for this murder. In the interview, she claims that even though her mother worked two jobs, they were living in a level of poverty because so much of that money went to drinking. She thought the alcohol was going to kill her mother anyways, and that she would just speed things up. She callously mentions how bad the movie based on the murder was, saying the only thing they got right was that she set a timer for holding her mother underwater. She did say she now appreciates that her mother was a single mom working two jobs to support three kids while also upgrading her education. She said her mother was a beautiful person, very smart and loving, who was traumatized and overwhelmed with addiction and different kinds of abuse. But ends that by saying, quote, I've been through so much trauma and what I did is by far the most painful thing I have had to live with, unquote. Even 18 years later, she still manages to make it about her. Beth has done no such interviews. That's all for this episode of Ominous Ontario. Join me again as I discuss more murders from across the province.